On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you? Who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? And now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And this place, in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's just turn to the Lord in prayer as we come to his word. Lord, we acknowledge your word is sharp and piercing even to divide bone and marrow. Separating soul and spirit. Exposing our thoughts and intentions. And so Lord, may your grace be sufficient upon the ministry of your word tonight. That it might be clear. There will be no doubts, discouragement. No thoughts of uncertainty. As your word pierces and probes, Lord, we welcome the work of your word in our hearts and our minds, ever changing, ever shaping us. I pray, Lord, that make every sermon a means of grace to the preacher firstly, so that I might experience your power of your dying love and to the hearers secondly. And so, Lord, we come. We are weak and easily led astray and sometimes rebellious and disobedient. But may your Holy Spirit work effectively in our hearts this evening. So that your grace may be effectual and your glory visible. That our hearts are now in your hands, O Lord. As this gathered service of worship is at your disposal, we are at your disposal. And so I ask, Lord, you'd set now the seal of your favor upon this time, upon the preached word. In Christ Jesus, our defender and provider. For the grass withers. And the flower fades. But your word, Lord, is eternal and remains forever. In Christ's name, amen. You probably know this. That some dates are easier to remember than others. Birthdays, for instance. I can remember some things that happened because it happened on my birthday. So I remember a particular date. The 25th of February. I think it was 1978. But I know the day and I know the month. It was a significant day. I remember the day I came to Christ. 16th of October. 1986. Because it's significant. But some days you remember because you associate them with certain things. You know your birthday, naturally. 
But you don't know everyone's birthday. And if it was dependent on my mind, I'd remember no one's birthdays. Barely my own. And sometimes the associations aren't always too obvious. And Haggai introduces this portion of scripture with an incredible way. What he does is to introduce it with a date. He wants us to remember it. And it is significant that we should. It says Haggai is speaking in the seventh month. To us sitting here today it might mean nothing. But the seventh month in the Jewish calendar was an incredibly busy month. An important month. I would go so far as to say a holy month. A consecrated month. It was a very busy month for the people of, of Judah in Haggai's day. So I want you to think about this. This date, what is the seventh month? And I want to bring it home to you in a moment, but I want to give you an illustration. William the Conqueror, now he lived in 1066. That's maybe a figure you might remember or might not. But you know, I know that I'll never forget the day he was born. And I won't forget the day, the date rather, that he came into power. But 1066 is important enough in in English history. But in your history, in my history, the day he was born is important. He was born on Christmas Day. So by association, you're going to think about this in weeks to come. And you're going to remember William the Conqueror was born on Christmas Day. You might forget the year, but you will remember the day, Christmas Day. But another significant thing is he was born in Westminster Abbey. Now, I remember that by association as well. Why? Because that's the abbey where they wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith in a, in a little room off on the side. And it's that Westminster Statement of Faith from which we took our 1689 and housed it in the same way, although with significant changes. So, I, by association, I remember that the date of his birth. Funny enough, it's never mentioned as the 25th of December in what I've read and heard in documentaries. It's always Christmas Day. And I suppose that that's quite good enough to remember. And I remember that he was born in Westminster Abbey because that's where the Westminster Confession of Faith was, was, uh, was written. And so I might forget 1066 because there's nothing significant to bring to my mind for that. The seventh month, have I used to bring such a significance to the people? The seventh month was an important month. There would be the usual Sabbath days. Remember Sabbath days were not on Saturday. That only came in with the Jewish calendar. They were held every seventh day. Look at, look at um, Deuteronomy. On the seventh day. So whatever day it started, it was always the seventh day. That became a Saturday under the Roman calendar. But long before the Romans, they would have a Sabbath on the 1st, on the 15th, sorry, the 8th, I missed out a day, the 8th, the 15th, and the 22nd. That was a Sabbath. But hang on, that gives us a problem. Because we have 30 days in our, and 31 days in our calendar. But they had 28, they had what we call a lunar calendar. And so, they would have their Sabbath on those days. And then they would have to mix it up so it would be a different day the next month because it was a different number. So the 29th, they would have 28 and 29 as being 
a double Sabbath. They'd have two days. I think our unions would be glad to hear that. Get extra days holiday. And that's because of, of this 28-day lunar calendar. So the 28th and the 1st became a Sabbath. Then they go to the 8th, the 15th, the 22nd, and so it would start all over again. So that is normal with any month, but in this particular 7th month, something else happened. And that was the Day of Atonement. Now, it might be our 10th month that the Jews celebrate October, the, the Day of Atonement, but in their calendar it was the 7th month. And then shortly after the Day of Atonement, from the 15th to the 21st, was a feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. And some people suggest that's the only feast that hasn't been fulfilled in prophecy. I suggest it is the very one that is fulfilled with prophecy. Because Do you know what the word tabernacle means? To live with, to dwell, to habit. And I believe God tabernacles with us now through the Holy Spirit. So, this was a busy month. And the month would have this week-long festival. And the purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles was to rejoice in God's kindness, God's favor, God's bounty in harvest. It would end with the festival of harvest. So beginning on the third Sabbath of the month, continuing the entire week was a Feast of Tabernacles. And when the people of God would sit outside in straw tents, weather permitting, I suppose, they'd make their little straw tents, they'd leave their homes and, and camp outside for that week, showing God's provision and remembering their coming out of Egypt. And then we find Haggai. In the seventh month, on the 21st day, 15th to the 21st, was the week in other words, the last day, the very last day of the feast, is a significant day. It's the climax of the feast. It's a day they, they've been waiting for. It's, it's almost like uh, Christmas holidays and your children all wait for Christmas Day. Like the 26th and 27th is now, you know, they've played with their gifts on, on the 25th, now they're bored again. But up until that time, they're looking forward to this 25th. And, and this was the Jews. They were looking forward. It was a, a building up to this last day of, of the, of the uh, Feast of Tabernacles on the 21st. We might link it to the 17th of October in our calendar. But here in 520 BC, Haggai stands up on the 21st day of the 7th month, the last day of this great festival, and he begins to preach God's Word. And so... It's significant he uses that day to remind them of God's bounty, to remind them that He's the God of their harvest. He's the God who takes care of them. Why is that significant? We will see shortly. Let's go back in time a bit. The people of God are discouraged. They're discouraged because the temple is still lying in ruins. They've been back for, for close on 20 years, 18 years, and, and the temple has still not been built. They have themselves to blame, I, I have no doubt. But they are discouraged, they are disappointed. Here they are Jews. I mean, it's like living in a place, let's say here in Roya Skral, and there's, let's say we were a few more, another 40 Baptists lived here and there was no Baptist church. They'd say, hey guys, come on, we've got to do something about it. Let's go plant a Baptist church. 
And so they, they were just like the Jews. Yeah, they were, a whole bunch of them, and they got nowhere to worship. There's no synagogues in the land. There's no temple in the land. There's barely any priests in the land. And they're sitting discouraged, disappointed, and waiting for something to happen. They are discouraged. And then, to make matters worse, I have no doubt that many of them were telling the stories. I don't think there was anyone living who had see, witnessed the temple, unless he was in his 80s or 90s. Maybe there were a few who had seen the temple that had been destroyed, Solomon's temple. And they would tell of this glorious temple. And, and if not, the children would hear it from, have heard it from their parents who had heard it from their parents. And so they're telling of this great temple. A temple which had brought Solomon such reputation that had gone, Scripture says, to the ends of the earth. Kings and princes and queens came to visit him, not only to his temple, but to hear the wisdom of his lips. And Jesus himself drew a comparison to Solomon and Solomon's glory. And so Solomon is glorious, and, and this is all they can think of. And now they look at the, at the place of the temple, and what do they see? Nothing but ruins. One writer said, And the temple which Solomon had built was befitting of the world's wealthiest monarchs. A temple that was appropriate for God Himself. But as the people reflected upon this, they were discouraged. And there were good reasons why they were discouraged. Remember when Solomon built, he didn't build with nothing. David had, had been a mighty king and laid up great wealth. And remember, David was king to build a temple, but God said, no, you've been a man of war. You may not build a temple. But he had built up a great wealth, an amount of gold and silver and, and, and timber and all kinds of things. So then when Solomon was king, everything was there. The resources were there. In the meantime, the people were trained. They had artisans of excellent nature. They were all trained. But here they are, this rabble almost in, in, in Judah. They, they have no one who's trained. They don't have vast reserves of funding or gold or, or bronze or timber. Solomon himself is supposedly have, have had access to gold mines in, in Africa. I don't know if that, it's not a biblical truth. It might be true. And we'll remember that the Temple, so much of the temple was overlaid with gold. There was just so much gold in it. That's why many of the other nations looked upon the temple and they didn't want it. they wanted to destroy the temple so they could take the gold. It was dripping in gold, as one writer put it. So when Solomon started to build the temple, they had a great start. They had trained people, they had resources, they had the gold, they had the timber, they had the silver, they had the bronze, they had everything. And, and certainly they didn't have a rabble of people that had come back from captivity trying to make an existence or too busy uh, making their houses warm. And so they look at their situation. They have no stockpiles, no lumber in large amounts, no massive stones at their disposal, no extra funds, no gold, no bronze. They had none of the advantages of Solomon. And when they look at the temple site, where once stood this grand temple, and some of them might have seen it, others would have held the image in their mind as it was explained to them. What do they see? Burnt, broken, smashed, leftovers of the temple. This is what Haggai is addressing. This is a discouragement they have. Where do you begin building when things are so bad? Where do you start? 
It wasn't just starting at the at ground zero, so to speak. Before you start at ground zero, you've got to go and find the stuff. You've got to go train the men. You, you know, there's so much to do. They didn't exactly have tilers and, and brickies uh, standing outside uh, Timber City as we have here. And you can just go grab one. Not that they're that well trained, but <laughs> they're still at least available. And this is a context of this passage of Haggai to encourage the people. And Haggai is delivering God's word. And it is God who sent Haggai. It is, in essence, God's word, not Haggai's word. He's to preach encouragement to the people. Is it not true that we are like the people in Haggai's day? I know amongst pastors, especially the older guys, they look back and they remember churches that were brimful. And nowadays, there's very few that are so brimful, especially in the Baptist, English-speaking world. And They look back and say, man, I remember the youth when I was a young guy. We had a youth of 50 or 60. Now I'm pastoring a church that got a youth of two. There's a danger looking back all the time, looking back and saying how great it was. You can do it in the church. You can. Some people do it economically or politically. They look back and they say, oh, it was so great then. But they forget it wasn't great for everyone. It was only great for some. So there's a snare here. There's a snare to look backwards. And you know, having things great all the time is not necessarily a good thing. And I'm not giving you a pep talk. To overcome your circumstances suddenly. I just want to get to the focus of where it is. But I want to use another illustration. Ingrid and I visited New Zealand probably about four times. I think our total time there is about 19 weeks. Quite a lot of times. Nearly five months. We love the country. We love our country. But we love the country. Some nice things about it that, that I just often think about. Especially when I go to town. No queues. Absolutely no queues. Did I get a smile? No potholes. 3,500 kilometers. No, no, we did 6,000 kilometers in, in 2008. Not one pothole. Minimum wage. 148 rand an hour. An hour. Unemployment has fallen this quarter to 4.9% unemployment. They have the best internet. You can't believe it. Wherever you go, there's internet. Banking is so easy. The roads are good. And drivers drive with consideration. 100 kilometers an hour, everyone drives 100 kilometers an hour. You cannot believe it. And then, if people make a lot of noise, they have Noise control. You pick up a phone and phone noise control. And they come and quieten them down. Just like that. And give them a little note. Oh, there's some things I don't like about it. Their coffee's not good. Ours is better. Oh, they're a nanny state. Look, they're socialist, liberal. Nanny state to boot. But surely that's not so bad. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Wake up call. New Zealand amongst the youth, has the second highest suicide amongst what is known as the OECD nations. The Operation for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD nations. About 40 40 of those nations, Japan, Norway, I can't remember them all. 
The second highest suicide rate. They have no reason to be discouraged. And here we come to these people of God. No noise control. No roads, never mind potholed ones. They're despondent. They have no resources. We see in our everyday life. We see the kingdom of God. We see churches. And, and we look at the kingdom of God amongst the churches. And we see some strong churches. And, and those that are strong sometimes really just don't preach the word. And so they have numbers. But the, the work isn't growing. Then There's not a true saving of souls. There's, there's no growth of, of, the, of the spiritual heart intellect, if, you, if I can call it that. There's, people aren't growing in Christ. I, I look at the church in South Africa and, and I say, stalled. It's stalled. The engine's cut. We look around and we, we, we start wondering what's happening in South Africa. Is the church on a suicide commission, a mission instead of a commission? We should be on a commission. Here on the last day of the great feast, Haggai speaks. I know why it is you're discouraged. I understand you. I understand why. You look back at the past and you think it is not like it was in Solomon's day. You look back in the past and you, you see that your wealth is not like in Solomon's day. Your resources are not like in Solomon's day. It's not even like it was in David's day. You're discouraged. And then you look at the enormity of the work at hand. You look at the, there's so much to do. So much work to be done. And you think it can't be done. I wonder how many people in churches that are struggling, that are small, like us. And they, they want to do something and they just say, it can't be done. We don't have the resources. We don't have the people. We don't have the finance. We don't have the building. We don't we don't, we don't. But here's Hagar on the last day. This is something he wants him to remember. On the last day. And the last day of what? A festival of God's abundant supply. The last day of the harvest festival. It's not no accident. It's intentional. God wanted him to speak on that last day. Because he's the God of the harvest. He's the God of the supply. We've got to be careful not to focus on ourselves when we have a task of God at hand. Look at our own lacks, <coughs> own inability. When in fact, what we should be looking at is, is it not God that equips? Is it not God that supplies? And if we focus on our, what we have and what we can do, we so often become discouraged. We focus on the task and see the enormity of it. That too, we can look and say we can be discouraged. We can look at, our, at the resources in this land and, and wonder about maybe our forebears. Maybe they've squandered the opportunity for evangelism. Maybe they squandered the opportunity for mission. Maybe they squandered the, the opportunity to bring a nation together. We can look back at it in many different ways. 
If we look back a hundred or two hundred years ago at the, the great richness and the heritage with great preachers and great preaching and the heritage that was left, a rich, rich heritage left for, for those who followed. Have we taken that heritage and have we enjoyed it? Have we used it to the best of our ability? Maybe not. And maybe we're sitting in this position because we didn't or our forebears didn't. How many in our generation or people in, in, in our circle of neighbors are unchurched. They're untaught in the word of God. Their knowledge of scripture is like just so low. We have as, as a nation, South Africa, have lost our passion for preaching. The churches in this nation desire all kinds of numbers and all kinds of uh, coverage, TV coverage and all kinds of things. And when I say passion for preaching, I'm not talking about clever devised Messages. I mean a passion for preaching. We've lost a passion for preaching. Where men will stand up and, and preach about hell. Will preach about the jealousy of God and the wrath of God. And in, with the same passion preach about the love of God. And the desire for God that we should have. It's not the subject that changes. But the passion that is within our churches. Have we become professional? We look at the circumstances which God has set us in. And we might feel like Haggai's generation. Who will encourage us? Haggai. He speaks to us. He encourages us. Those sins which so easily entangle. I remember when I went fishing for the first time with my uncle. I remember clearly what I caught. Because he told me what it was. She says, oh, you got yourself a bird's nest there. And isn't that what sin does? It entangles. You spend the light of the night, flickering light, trying to undo that thing. Then she said, come here, cut it off, throw it away, yeah, I'll give you some more. And that's what happens. We get entangled by worldliness. We get entangled by sin. We get entangled by our own slothfulness. We get entangled by our own desires for to please self. And then when we try to do something, we're so entangled, we can't get out. We can't cast the rod. We can't catch the fish that are there to be caught because our, our, our net, in this case, is entangled. And what do we say? Work can't be done. I can't do it. Don't know how to do it. We can't do it. Listen to Haggai. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. Wow. He's just making sure no one's left out. All of you. Why? For I am with you, declares the Lord. Do the work, yes. But let your confidence be in I am. Let the confidence be in Him, because I am is with you. He is with you. Don't suppose there's ever a day in the experience of God's people that work would have been out of place. And at the same time, the presence of God would have been out of place. And here is Haggai. After this great festival, the last day of the festival, celebrating God's provision. You're celebrating, but you're not believing. 
You see the problem? They are celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. They've gone and made their little tents outside their, their, their homes, their little straw tents, and they're living in them. And they're discouraged. And Haggai is saying, listen, you're celebrating the very thing you should be celebrating in action, not inaction. Yes, you have your difficulties. Yes, you have your, your, your burdens. Yes, you have your entanglements. What is it the writer of Hebrews says? He said, come to Jesus and look to Him. If you focus on your difficulties and sorrows and your burdens, you will always be discouraged. If you are trusting in your own strength, you will always fail. But look to the author and finisher of your faith. I love that passage. You know, it's typical of, of the writers of that day. The author and finisher. And everything else in between. That's implied, isn't it? The beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega of your faith. And you know, the message hasn't changed since Haggai's day. The message is the same. <laughs> you don't have the resources. You don't have the people. You don't have the, the, the uh, trained, skilled people. But I am with you. I am with you. Every promise that our gracious God makes to us in His Word is covered by I will never leave you. Every promise He gives us, every promise we take into our heart, it is covered by the words I am with you. Listen, verse 6 to 7, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and, and, and sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. One commentator looked at it this way. He said, it's like these treasures are up in trees, and God's going to shake the trees till the treasures fall so they can jolly well build the building. I don't think that's actually a very good interpretation. But it's not inaccurate. He says, I'm going to shake the heavens. I'm going to shake the earth and the sea and the dry land. I'm going to shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. I don't know how that works. But pray for a shaking that God's treasures may come into the kingdom of God. I don't know how it works. But I do take God's word as his word. All the resources of the world are his. Don't you love that scripture? We often make a joke when someone says, Oh, John, that's a nice jacket you got. Do you like my jacket? I don't buy it second hand, but I won't brag about that. But um, someone says to you, That's a nice jacket, and you, you feel shy because, you know, it's an expensive jacket. And you say, Well, you know, I have a rich daddy. Haven't you all done that? I have a rich father. The silver and gold is his. Cattle on a thousand hills are his also. But more than that, He's with me. And He says, I will provide the resources you need when you need them. And here's the thing, isn't it? As long as Judah was sitting in their paneled houses, were the resources going to come? No, why? Because they didn't need them. But now God has used Haggai to stir them up. Now they want to build. And what's, what's God going to do? He's going to bring in the resources. How? He's going to shake the nations. He's going to shake the sea and the sky and the mountains and everything. He's going to shake everything possible and the resources will come in. But until they start, until they go and start chopping down the trees and start making a plan for this temple to be built, nothing will come in. But nothing. And they look at the ramshackle hut that's left there on, on, 
on the fields or a couple of burnt timbers lying on top of each other. And they shake their head again. Is this possible? Then, in case of doubt, Haggai's not going to let them off the hook too easily. He essentially says to them, listen, this temple that you're going to build, I'll be glorified in it. What an inspiration to do the work of God. The promise is you do the work. God says, I will be glorified in it. You do the work. I will be glorified in it. And then he goes on to to tell these people in Judah. Listen. That great temple. And listen, Solomon's temple was glorious. That great temple will be exceeded by the coming temple. It's going to be even more glorious. Why? Not necessarily because of the building. Because the glory God would bring it. Isn't there a link to us as Christians? You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the glory He will shine through your lives will be greater than Solomon's glory. I read from John 7.37 On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up. What feast is this? It's the same feast. Where was Jesus on this day? In the temple. Probably the same spot Haggai was. Except Haggai stood on rubble. Jesus stood on a built temple. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. These words of Isaiah. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And isn't that the message for us today? If anyone thirsts, if you will but be my servants, if you will but come, I will give you what you need. I will be your provider. I will give you every kind of thing you need to do the work that I've put your hand to do. But we know who to come to. We are well taught. It is Christ. Anyone who thirsts comes to Him. He will meet that need. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus cried out, If anyone, anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Are we thirsty? And we put a spin on this, an unbiblical spin in a sense. But are we thirsty for the work of God? Are we thirsty for His kingdom? I love Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who is thirsty, I think of, English Standard Version might say. The others say, come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. You know what the picture is? You know in those days they traveled and was hot. And they'd come into the little village square where the market was. And there wasn't exactly a, a wimpy on the corner to go and have a cup of coffee. But there were guys running around with... Skin filled, you know, like those tummies. What do they call them? Vellum. Uh, sort of bag slung, like those wine bags slung on his shoulder. And they'd walk through the, 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 the square. Ho! Ho! Anyone who's thirsty, come and drink! You take out your penny and give them a penny and <coughs> you get a drink of water. That's the picture. But notice what Isaiah says. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Who? He who has no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine. 
and milk. The product is in, increasing. It started with water. Then it was something to eat. Then it was wine. Then milk. Buy it without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love as it was for David. I want to suggest there's such encouragement in this passage. We often look and say, well, we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't. But he can, he can, he can, he can. The resources are in his hands. Let's not be discouraged. Let's look to our Lord for he is with us even till the end of the age. Let's pray.